Alright everyone, hey, how are you doing? Hope everyone's doing well out there. This is Black Clock Audio Tales, and we are here to tell you ghost stories, spooky stories, folklore, gothic horror, weird fiction, and more. So, how are you doing? Uh, we are in week three of Poe, the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe, and as always, Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by FoundItemClothing.com and BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm with bunny slippers. They've got those Dino Sound slippers. They've got soft plush uppers and firm foam bottoms that grip and don't slip. Make Dino Sounds every three steps. Keep your feet warm this winter. Don't lose your feet to frostbite. And eat vitamin C or you'll get scurvy. And listen to PGTTCM, our Cthulhu show that is the end of the month, every month. This month, we're going to have some Ken Height. We're going to have some Scott Glancy. Maybe we'll have some Andrew Migliori. I don't know. We'll probably have some David Heath. And of course, we'll have me, your host, D.B. Spitzer. Thank you again so much for listening to People's Guide to Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, Dave's Corner of this Podcast. Articulate warbling, and sooner than later, Dave's underground goat shenanigans. All produced through Badgerstrip Studio here in glorious Portland, Oregon. Give us five stars if you like the show. Let us know, give us a review, or you can always donate money through some sort of patron scheme through podbean.com. Go to pgttcm.podbean.com. Click the donate button and learn how, or go to pgttcm.com and learn how to be a patron by clicking on the patron button. We're on social media, Facebook, MySpace, no, we're not on MySpace, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Facebook and Instagram mostly is where you're going to get the cool, fresh news, and Twitter if you just kind of want like a little repeater of the RSS feed. Thank you again so much, and here we go with Edgar Allan Poe, Week 3, Book 3, The Raven Works Collection, Collected, Collection, Collected, Edgar Allan Poe. Recording by Russet McMillan The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe The Spectacles, Part 2 I replied as best I could, as only a true lover can. I spoke at length and perseveringly of my devotion, of my passion, of her exceeding beauty, and of my own enthusiastic admiration. In conclusion, I dwelt with a convincing energy upon the perils that encompass the course of love, that course of true love that never did run smooth, and thus deduced the manifest danger of rendering that course unnecessarily long. This latter argument seemed finally to soften the rigor of her determination. She relented, but there was yet an obstacle, she said, which she felt assured I had not properly considered. This was a delicate point, for a woman to urge, especially so. In mentioning it, she saw that she must make a sacrifice of her feelings. Still, for me, every sacrifice should be made. She alluded to the topic of age. Was I aware, was I fully aware of the discrepancy between us? 
that the age of the husband should surpass by a few years, even by fifteen or twenty, the age of the wife, was regarded by the world as admissible, and, indeed, as even proper. But she had always entertained the belief that the years of the wife should never exceed in number those of the husband. A discrepancy of this unnatural kind gave rise too frequently, alas, to a life of unhappiness. Now she was aware that my own age did not exceed two and twenty, and I, on the contrary, perhaps, was not aware that the years of my Eugenie extended very considerably beyond that sum. About all this there was a nobility of soul, a dignity of candor, which delighted, which enchanted me, which eternally riveted my chains. I could scarcely restrain the excessive transport which possessed me. "'My Swedish Eugenie,' I cried, "'what is all this about which you are discoursing? Your years surpass in some measure my own. But what then?' The customs of the world are so many conventional follies. To those who love as ourselves, in what respect differs a year from an hour? I am twenty-two, you say. Granted. Indeed, you may as well call me at once twenty-three. Now, you yourself, my dearest Eugenie, can have numbered no more than... Can have numbered no more than... No more than... 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 Here I paused for an instant, in the expectation that Madame Lalande would interrupt me by supplying her true age. But a Frenchwoman is seldom direct, and has always, by way of answer to an embarrassing query, some little practical reply of her own. In the present instance, Eugenie, who, for a few moments past, had seemed to be searching for something in her bosom, at length let fall upon the grass a miniature, which I immediately picked up and presented to her. "'Keep it,' she said, with one of her most ravishing smiles. "'Keep it for my sake, for the sake of her whom it too flatteringly represents. "'Besides, upon the back of the trinket you may discover, perhaps, "'the very information you seem to desire. "'It is now, to be sure, growing rather dark, "'but you can examine it at your leisure in the morning. "'In the meantime, you shall be my escort home tonight. "'My friends are about holding a little musical levee. I can promise you, too, some good singing. We French are not nearly so punctilious as you Americans, and I shall have no difficulty in smuggling you in, in the character of an old acquaintance. With this, she took my arm, and I attended her home. The mansion was quite a fine one, and, I believe, furnished in good taste. Of this latter point, however, I am scarcely qualified to judge, for it was just dark as we arrived, and in American mansions of the better sort— Lights seldom, during the heat of summer, make their appearance at this the most pleasant period of the day. In about an hour after my arrival, to be sure, a single shaded solar lamp was lit in the principal drawing-room, and this apartment, I could thus see, was arranged with unusual good taste and even splendor. But two other rooms of the suite, and in which the company chiefly assembled, remained during the whole evening in a very agreeable shadow. This is a well-conceived custom, giving the party at least a choice of light or shade, and one which our friends over the water could not do better than immediately adopt. The evening thus spent was unquestionably the most delicious of my life. Madame Lalande had not overrated the musical abilities of her friends, and the singing I here heard I had never heard excelled in any private circle out of Vienna. The instrumental performers were many and of superior talents. 
The vocalists were chiefly ladies, and no individual sang less than well. At length, upon a peremptory call for Madame Lalande, she arose at once, without affectation or demur, from the chaise longue upon which she had sat by my side, and, accompanied by one or two gentlemen and her female friend of the opera, repaired to the piano in the main drawing-room. I would have escorted her myself, but felt that, under the circumstances of my introduction to the house, I had better remain unobserved where I was. I was thus deprived of the pleasure of seeing, although not of hearing, her sing. The impression she produced upon the company seemed electrical, but the effect upon myself was something even more. I know not how adequately to describe it. It arose in part, no doubt, from the sentiment of love with which I was imbued, but chiefly from my conviction of the extreme sensibility of the singer. It is beyond the reach of art to endow either air or recitative with more impassioned expression than was hers. Her utterance of the romance in Otello, the tone with which she gave the words Sul mio sasso in the Capuleti, is ringing in my memory yet. Her lower tones were absolutely miraculous. Her voice embraced three complete octaves, extending from the contralto D to the D upper soprano, and, though sufficiently powerful to have filled the San Carlos, executed with the minutest precision every difficulty of vocal composition, ascending and descending scales, cadences, or fioriturri. In the final of the Somnambula, she brought about a most remarkable effect at the words, A non giunge uman pensiero al contento onio son piena. Here, in imitation of Malibran, she modified the original phrase of Bellini, so as to let her voice descend to the tenor G, when, by a rapid transition, she struck the G above the treble stave, springing over an interval of two octaves. Upon rising from the piano, after these miracles of vocal execution, she resumed her seat by my side. When I expressed to her, in terms of the deepest enthusiasm, my delight at her performance. Of my surprise I said nothing, and yet I was most unfeignedly surprised. For a certain feebleness, or, or rather a certain tremulous indecision of voice in ordinary conversation— had prepared me to anticipate that, in singing, she would not acquit herself with any remarkable ability. Our conversation was now long, earnest, uninterrupted, and totally unreserved. She made me relate many of the earlier passages of my life, and listened with breathless attention to every word of the narrative. I concealed nothing, felt that I had a right to conceal nothing from her confiding affection. Encouraged by her candor upon the delicate point of her age, I entered, with perfect frankness, not only into a detail of my many minor vices, but made full confession of those moral and even of those physical infirmities, the disclosure of which, in demanding so much higher a degree of courage, is so much surer an evidence of love. I touched upon my college indiscretions, upon my extravagances, upon my carousals, upon my debts, upon my flirtations. I even went so far as to speak of a slightly hectic cough with which, at one time, I had been troubled, of a chronic rheumatism, of a twinge of hereditary gout, and, in conclusion of the disagreeable and inconvenient but hitherto carefully concealed weakness of my eyes. 
"'Upon this latter point,' said Madame Lalande, laughingly, "'you have been surely injudicious in coming to confession, "'for without the confession I take it for granted "'that no one would have accused you of the crime. "'By the by,' she continued, "'have you any recollection?' "'And here I fancied that a blush, "'even through the gloom of the apartment, "'became distinctly visible upon her cheek. "'Have you any recollection, mon cher ami, "'of this little ocular assistant "'which now depends from my neck?' As she spoke, she twirled in her fingers the identical double eyeglass which had so overwhelmed me with confusion at the opera. "'Full well, alas, do I remember it!' I exclaimed, pressing passionately the delicate hand which offered the glasses for my inspection. They formed a complex and magnificent toy, richly chased and filigreed and gleaming with jewels, which, even in the deficient light, I could not help perceiving were of high value.' "'Eh bien, mon ami,' she resumed with a certain impressment of manner that rather surprised me. "'Eh bien, mon ami, you have earnestly besought of me a favor, which you have been pleased to denominate priceless. You have demanded of me my hand upon the morrow. Should I yield to your entreaties, and, I may add, to the pleadings of my own bosom, would I not be entitled to demand of you a very, a very little boon in return?' "'Name it!' I exclaimed with an energy that had nearly drawn upon us the observation of the company, and restrained by their presence alone from throwing myself impetuously at her feet. "'Name it, my beloved, my Eugenie, my own, name it! But, alas, it is already yielded ere named!' "'You shall conquer, then, mon ami,' said she. "'For the sake of the Eugenie whom you love, this little weakness which you have at last confessed.' this weakness more moral than physical, and which, let me assure you, is so unbecoming the nobility of your real nature, so inconsistent with the candor of your usual character, and which, if permitted further control, will assuredly involve you sooner or later in some very disagreeable scrape. You shall conquer for my sake this affectation which leads you, as you yourself acknowledge, to the tacit or implied denial of your infirmity of vision, for this infirmity you virtually deny in refusing to employ the customary means for its relief. You will understand me to say, then, that I wish you to wear spectacles. Ah, hush! You have already consented to wear them for my sake. You shall accept the little toy which I now hold in my hand, and which, though admirable as an aid division, is really of no very immense value as a gem. You perceive that, by a trifling modification, thus, or thus, it can be adapted to the eyes in the form of spectacles, or worn in the waistcoat pocket as an eyeglass. It is in the former mode, however, and habitually, that you have already consented to wear it for my sake. This request, must I confess it, confused me in no little degree. But the condition with which it was coupled rendered hesitation, of course, a matter altogether out of the question. "'It is done!' I cried, with all the enthusiasm that I could muster at the moment. "'It is done. It is most cheerfully agreed. I sacrifice every feeling for your sake. Tonight I wear this dear eyeglass as an eyeglass, and upon my heart. But with the earliest dawn of that morning which gives me the pleasure of calling you wife, I will place it upon my upon my nose, and there wear it, ever afterward, 
in the less romantic and less fashionable, but certainly in the more serviceable form which you desire. Our conversation now turned upon the details of our arrangements for the morrow. Talbot, I learned from my betrothed, had just arrived in town. I was to see him at once and procure a carriage. The soiree would scarcely break up before two, and by this hour the vehicle was to be at the door when, in the confusion occasioned by the departure of the company, Madame L. could easily enter it unobserved. We were then to call at the house of a clergyman who would be in waiting. There, be married, drop Talbot, and proceed upon a short tour to the east, leaving the fashionable world at home to make whatever comments upon the matter it thought best. Having planned all this, I immediately took leave and went in search of Talbot. But on the way I could not refrain from stepping into a hotel for the purpose of inspecting the miniature. And this I did by the powerful aid of the glasses. The countenance was a surpassingly beautiful one, those large luminous eyes, that proud Grecian nose, those dark luxuriant curls. Ah, said I exultingly to myself, this is indeed the speaking image of my beloved. I turned the reverse and discovered the words, Eugénie Lalonde, aged twenty-seven years and seven months. I found Talbot at home, and proceeded at once to acquaint him with my good fortune. He professed excessive astonishment, of course, but congratulated me most cordially, and proffered every assistance in his power. In a word, we carried out our arrangement to the letter, and at two in the morning, just ten minutes after the ceremony, I found myself in a close carriage with Madame Lalonde, with Mrs. Simpson, I should say, and driving at a great rate out of town in a direction northeast by north half north. It had been determined for us by Talbot that, as we were to be up all night, we should make our first stop at C, a village about twenty miles from the city, and there get an early breakfast and some repose before proceeding upon our route. At four precisely, therefore, the carriage drew up at the door of the principal inn. I handed my adored wife out, and ordered breakfast forthwith. In the meantime we were shown into a small parlour, and sat down. It was now nearly, if not altogether, daylight, and as I gazed enraptured at the angel by my side, the singular idea came all at once into my head that this was really the very first moment since my acquaintance with the celebrated loveliness of Madame Lalonde that I had enjoyed a near inspection of that loveliness by daylight at all. "'And now, mon ami,' said she, taking my hand, and so interrupting this train of reflection, "'and now, mon cher ami, since we are indissolubly one, since I have yielded to your passionate entreaties and performed my portion of our agreement, I presume you have not forgotten that you have also a little favour to bestow, a little promise which it is your intention to keep. Ah, let me see, let me remember. Yes, full easily do I call to mind the precise words of the dear promise you made to Eugenie last night. Listen, you spoke thus. It is done, it is most cheerfully agreed. I sacrifice every feeling for your sake. Tonight I wear this dear eyeglass as an eyeglass, and upon my heart. But with the earliest dawn of that morning which gives me the privilege of calling you wife, I will place it upon my upon my nose, and there wear it ever afterward in the less romantic and less fashionable, but certainly in the more serviceable form which you desire. These were the exact words, my beloved husband, were they not? 
They were, I said. You have an excellent memory. And assuredly, my beautiful Eugenie, there is no disposition on my part to evade the performance of the trivial promise they imply. See, behold, they are becoming, rather, are they not? And here, having arranged the glasses in the ordinary form of spectacles, I applied them gingerly in their proper position. While Madame Simpson, adjusting her cap and folding her arms, sat bolt upright in her chair, in a somewhat stiff and prim, and indeed in a somewhat undignified position. "'Goodness gracious me!' I exclaimed, almost at the very instant that the rim of the spectacles had settled upon my nose. "'My goodness gracious me! Why, what can be the matter with these glasses?' And taking them quickly off, I wiped them carefully with a silk handkerchief and adjusted them again. But if, in the first instance, there had occurred something which occasioned me surprise, in the second, this surprise became elevated into astonishment, and this astonishment was profound, was extreme. Indeed, I may say, it was horrific. What, in the name of everything hideous, did this mean? Could I believe my eyes? Could I? That was the question. Was that... was that... was that rouge? And were those... and were those... Were those wrinkles upon the visage of Eugenie Lalande? And, oh, Jupiter and every one of the gods and goddesses, little and big, what, 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 what had become of her teeth? I dashed the spectacles violently to the ground and, leaping to my feet, stood erect in the middle of the floor, confronting Mrs. Simpson with my arms set akimbo and grinning and foaming, but at the same time utterly speechless with terror and with rage. Now, I have already said that Madame Eugenie Lalande, that is to say, uh, Simpson, spoke the English language but very little better than she wrote it, and for this reason... She very properly never attempted to speak it upon ordinary occasions. But rage will carry a lady to any extreme. In the present case, it carried Mrs. Simpson to the very extraordinary extreme of attempting to hold a conversation in a tongue that she did not altogether understand. "'Well, monsieur,' said she, after surveying me, in great apparent astonishment for some moments, "'Well, monsieur, and va then? Vat de matter now?' Is it the dance of the Saint Vitus that you have? If not like me, what for why by the pig in the poke? You wretch, said I, catching my breath. You, you, you villainous old hag. Hag? Old? Me not so very old, after all. Me not one single day more than the eighty-two. Eighty-two, I ejaculated, staggering to the wall. Eighty-two hundred thousand baboons. The miniature said twenty-seven years and seven months. To be sure, that is so very true, but then the portrait has been taken for these uh, fifty-five years. Then I go marry my second husband, Monsieur Lalande, at that time, I had the portrait taken for my daughter by my first husband, Monsieur Moissart. Moissart, said I. Yes, Moissart, said she, mimicking my pronunciation, which, to speak the truth, was none of the best. And Vaden, what you know about the Moissart? 
nothing, you old fright. I know nothing about him at all. Only I had an ancestor of that name once upon a time. That name? And what you have for to say to that name? Tis very good name. And so is Voissar. That is very good name too. My daughter, Madame Moissar, she married Monsieur Voissar, and the name is both very respectable name. Moissart, I exclaimed, and Voissart. Why, what is it you mean? What I mean? I mean Moissar and Voissar, and for the matter of that, I mean Croissar and Froissart too, if I only think proper to mean it. My daughter's daughter, Mademoiselle Voissart, she married von Monsieur Croissart, and then again, my daughter's granddaughter, Mademoiselle Croissart, she married von Monsieur Froissart, and I suppose you say that that is not von very respectable name? Froissart, said I, beginning to faint. Why, surely you don't say Moissart and Voissart and Croissart and Froissart? Yes, she replied, leaning back fully in her chair and stretching out her lower limbs at great length. Yes, Moissart and Voissart and Croissart and Froissart. But Monsieur Froissart, he was von ver big, what you call, fool. He was von ver great big dance, like yourself, for he left la belle France for to come to this stupid Amérique. And when he get here, he went and have von ver stupid, von ver very stupid son. So I hear, though I not yet have had the plaisir to meet with him. Neither me nor my companion de Madame Stephanie Lalonde. He is named the... Napoleon Bonaparte Froissart, and I suppose you say that that too is not a very respectable name. Either the length or the nature of this speech had the effect of working up Mrs. Simpson into a very extraordinary passion indeed, and as she made an end of it, with great labor she lumped up from her chair like somebody bewitched, dropping upon the floor an entire universe of bustle as she lumped. Once upon her feet, she gnashed her gums, brandished her arms, rolled up her sleeves, shook her fist in my face, and concluded the performance by tearing the cap from her head, and with it an immense wig of the most valuable and beautiful black hair, the whole of which she dashed upon the ground with a yell, and there trampled and danced a fandango upon it in an absolute ecstasy and agony of rage. Meantime, I sank aghast into the chair which she had vacated. Moisart and Voisart, I repeated thoughtfully as she cut one of her pigeon wings, and Croisart and Froisart as she completed another. Moisart and Voisart and Croisart and Napoleon Bonaparte Froisart. Why, you inevitable old servant, that's me, that's me, do you hear? That's me! Here I screamed at the top of my voice, That's me! I am Napoleon Bonaparte Froisart! And if I haven't married my great-great-grandmother, I wish I may be everlastingly confounded. Madame Eugénie Lalonde, quasi-Simpson, formerly Moissart, was, in sober fact, my great-great-grandmother. In her youth, she had been beautiful, and even at eighty-two retained the majestic height, the sculptural contour of head, the fine eyes and the Grecian nose of her girlhood. By the aid of these, of pearl powder, of rouge, of false hair, false teeth, and false tournure, as well as of the most skillful modistes of Paris, she contrived to hold a respectable footing among the beauties en peu passé of the French metropolis. 
In this respect, indeed, she might have been regarded as little less than the equal of the celebrated Ninon de L'Enclos. She was immensely wealthy, and being left for the second time a widow without children, she bethought herself of my existence in America, and, for the purpose of making me her heir, paid a visit to the United States in company with a distant and exceedingly lovely relative of her second husband's, a Madame Stephanie Lalonde. At the opera, my great-great-grandmother's attention was arrested by my notice, and, upon surveying me through her eyeglass, she was struck with a certain family resemblance to herself. Thus interested, and knowing that the heir she sought was actually in the city, she made inquiries of her party respecting me. The gentleman who attended her knew my person and told her who I was. The information thus obtained induced her to renew her scrutiny, and this scrutiny it was which so emboldened me that I behaved in the absurd manner already detailed. She returned my bow, however, under the impression that by some odd accident I had discovered her identity. When deceived by my weakness of vision and the arts of the toilet in respect to the age and charms of this strange lady, I demanded so enthusiastically of Talbot who she was, he concluded that I meant the younger beauty as a matter of course, and so informed me with perfect truth that she was the celebrated widow Madame Lalonde. In the street next morning my great-great-grandmother encountered Talbot, an old Parisian acquaintance, and the conversation very naturally turned upon myself. My deficiencies of vision were then explained, for these were notorious, although I was entirely ignorant of their notoriety, and my good old relative discovered, much to her chagrin, that she had been deceived in supposing me aware of her identity, and that I had merely been making a fool of myself in making open love in a theatre to an old woman unknown. By way of punishing me for this imprudence, she concocted with Talbot a plot. He purposely kept out of my way to avoid giving me the introduction. My street inquiries about the lovely widow, Madame Lalande, were supposed to refer to the younger lady, of course, and thus the conversation with the three gentlemen whom I encountered shortly after leaving Talbot's hotel will be easily explained, as also their allusion to Ninon de L'Enclos. I had no opportunity of seeing Madame Lalande closely during daylight, and, at her musical soiree, my silly weakness in refusing the aid of glasses effectually prevented me from making a discovery of her age. When Madame Lalande was called upon to sing, the younger lady was intended, and it was she who rose to obey the call, my great-great-grandmother, to further the deception, arising at the same moment and accompanying her to the piano in the main drawing-room. Had I decided upon escorting her thither, it had been her design to suggest the propriety of my remaining where I was, but my own prudential views rendered this unnecessary. The songs which I so much admired, and which so confirmed my impression of the youth of my mistress, were executed by Madame Stephanie Lalande. The eyeglass was presented by way of adding a reproof to the hoax, a sting to the epigram of the deception. Its presentation afforded an opportunity for the lecture upon affectation with which I was so especially edified. It is almost superfluous to add that the glasses of the instrument, as worn by the old lady, had been exchanged by her for a pair better adapted to my years. They suited me, in fact, to a T. The clergyman, who merely pretended to tie the fatal knot, was a boon companion of Talbot's and no priest. 
He was an excellent whip, however, and having doffed his cassock to put on a great coat, he drove the hack, which conveyed the happy couple out of town. Talbot took a seat at his side. The two scoundrels were thus in at the death, and through a half-open window of the back parlor of the inn amused themselves in grinning at the denouement of the drama. I believe I shall be forced to call them both out. Nevertheless, I am not the husband of my great-great-grandmother, and this is a reflection which affords me infinite relief. But I am the husband of Madame Lalande, of Madame Stephanie Lalande, with whom my good old relative, besides making me her sole heir when she dies, if she ever does, has been at the trouble of concocting me a match. In conclusion, I am done forever with billets doux, and I am never to be met without spectacles. End of section 30 Recording by Russet Macmillan The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe, Section 31. King Pest. A tale containing an allegory. The gods do bear, and will allow in kings, the things which they abhor in rascal roots. Brockhurst's Tragedy of Ferrex and Porrex. About twelve o'clock, one night in the month of October, and during the chivalrous reign of the third Edward, two seamen belonging to the crew of the Free and Easy, a trading schooner plying between Sloys and the Thames, and then at anchor in that river, were much astonished to find themselves seated in the tap-room of an alehouse in the parish of St. Andrew's, London, which alehouse bore for sign the portraiture of a jolly tar. The room, although ill-contrived, smoke blackened, low-pitched, and in every other respect agreeing with the general character of such places at the period, was nevertheless, in the opinion of the grotesque group scattered here and there within it, sufficiently well adapted to its purpose. Of these groups, our two seamen formed, I think, the most interesting, if not the most conspicuous. The one, who appeared to be the elder, and whom his companion addressed by the characteristic appellation of Legs, was at the same time much the taller of the two. He might have measured six feet and a half, and an habitual stoop in the shoulders seemed to have been the necessary consequence of an altitude so enormous. Superfluities in height were, however, more than accounted for by deficiencies in other respects. He was exceedingly thin, and might, as his associates asserted, have answered when drunk, for a pennant at the masthead, or when sober, have served for a jibboom. But these jests, and others of a similar nature, had evidently produced at no time any effect upon the caconatory muscles of the tar. With high cheekbones, a large hawk nose, retreating tin, fallen underjaw, and huge protruding white eyes, the expression of his countenance, although tinged with a species of dogged indifference to matters and things in general, was not the less utterly solemn and serious beyond all attempts at imitation or description. The younger seaman was, in all outward appearance, the converse of his companion. His stature could not have exceeded four feet, 
A pair of stumpy bow legs supported his squat, unwieldy figure, while his unusually short and thick arms, with no ordinary fists at their extremities, swung off dangling from his sides like the fins of a sea turtle. Small eyes of no particular color twinkled far back in his head. His nose remained buried in the mass of flesh, which enveloped his round, full, and purple face, and his thick upper lip rested upon the still thicker one beneath with an air of complacent self-satisfaction, much heightened by the owner's habit of licking them at intervals. He evidently regarded his tall shipmate with a feeling half wondrous, half quizzical, and stared up occasionally in his face as the red setting sun stares up at the crags of Ben Nevis. Various and eventful, however, had been the peregrination of the worthy couple in and about the different tap houses of the neighborhood during the early hours of the night. Funds, even the most ample, are not always everlasting, and it was with empty pockets our friends had ventured upon the present hostelry. At the precise period, then, when this history properly commences, Legs and his fellow Hugh Tarpaulin sat each with both elbows resting upon the large oaken table in the middle of the floor, and with a hand upon either cheek. They were eyeing, from behind a huge flagon of unpaid-for humming stuff, the portentous words, No Chalk, which, to their indignation and astonishment, were scored over the doorway by means of that very mineral whose presence they purported to deny. Not that gifts of deciphering written characters, a gift among the commonality of that day considered little less cabalistical than the art of indicting could, in strict justice, have been laid to the charge of either disciple of the sea. But there was, to say the truth, a certain twist in the formation of the letters, an indescribable lee lurch about the whole, which foreboded, in the opinion of both seamen, a long run of dirty weather, and determined them at once in the allegorical words of Legs himself, to pump ship, clue up all sail, and scud before the wind. Having accordingly disposed of what remained of the ale, and looped up the points of their short doublets, they finally made a bolt for the street. Although Tarpaulin rolled twice into the fireplace, mistaking it for the door, yet their escape was at length happily effected, and half after twelve o'clock found our heroes ripe for mischief, and running for life down a dark alley in the direction of St. Andrew's Stair, hotly pursued by the landlady of the Jolly Tar. At the epoch of this eventful tale, and periodically for many years before and after, all England, but more especially the metropolis, resounded with the fearful cry of plague. The city was in a great measure depopulated, and in those horrible regions, in the vicinity of the Thames, where amid the dark, narrow, and filthy lanes and alleys, the demon of disease was supposed to have had his nativity. All terror and superstition were alone to be found stalking abroad. By authority of the king, such districts were placed under ban, and all persons forbidden, under pain of death, to intrude upon their dismal solitude. Yet neither the mandate of the monarch, nor the huge barriers erected at the entrances of the streets, nor the prospect of that loathsome death, which, with almost absolute certainty, overwhelmed the wretch whom no peril could deter from the adventure, prevented the unfurnished and untenanted dwellings from being stripped, by the hand of knightly rapine, of every article, such as iron, brass, or lead-work, which could in any manner be turned to a profitable account. Above all, it was usually found 
upon the annual winter opening of the barriers, that locks, bolts, and secret cellars had proved but slender protection to those rich stores of wines and liquors which, in consideration of the risk and trouble of removal, many of the numerous dealers having shops in the neighborhood had consented to trust, during the period of exile, to so insufficient a security. But there were very few of the terror-stricken people who attributed these doings to the agency of human hands. Pest spirits, plague goblins, and fever demons were the popular imps of mischief, and tales so blood-chilling were hourly told that the whole mass of forbidden buildings was at length enveloped in terror as in a shroud, and the plunderer himself was often scared away by the horrors of his own depreciation that had created, leaving the entire vast circuit of prohibited district to gloom, silence, pestilence, and death. It was by one of the terrific barriers already mentioned, and which indicated the region beyond to be under the pest band, that in scrambling down an alley, legs, and the worthy Hugh Tarpaulin found their progress suddenly impeded. To return was out of the question, and no time was to be lost, as their pursuers were closing upon their heels. With thoroughbred seamen, to clamber up the roughly fashioned plankwork was a trifle, and, maddened with the twofold excitement of exercise and liquor, they leaped unhesitatingly down with the enclosure, and, holding on their drunken course with shouts and yellings, were soon bewildered in its noisome and intricate recesses. Had they not, indeed, been intoxicated beyond moral sense, their reeling footsteps must have been palsied by the horrors of their situation. The air was cold and misty. The paving-stones, loosened from their beds, lay in wild disorder among the tall, rank grass, which sprang up around the feet and ankles. Fallen houses choked up the streets. Most fetid and poisonous smells everywhere prevailed and by the aid of that ghastly light, which, even at midnight, never fails to emanate from a vapory and pestilential atmosphere, might be discerned, lying in the bypaths and alleys, or rotting in the windowless habitations, the carcass of many a nocturnal plunderer arrested by the hand of the plague in the very perpetration of his robbery. But it lay not in the power of images, or sensations, or impediments such as these, to stay the course of men who, naturally brave, and at that time especially brimful of courage and of humming stuff, would have reeled, as straight as their condition might have permitted, undauntingly into the very jaws of death. Onward, still onward, stalked the grim legs, making the desolate solemnity echo and re-echo with yells like the terrific war-whoop of the Indian, and onward— still onward, rolled the dumpy tarpaulin, hanging on to the doublet of his more active companion, and far surpassing the latter's most strenuous exertions in the way of vocal music by bull-roarings in basso from the profundity of his centurion lungs. They had now evidently reached the stronghold of the pestilence. Their way, at every step or plunge, grew more noisome and more horrible, the paths more narrow and more intricate, huge stones and beams, falling momently from the decaying roofs above them, gave evidence, by their sullen and heavy descent, of the vast height of the surrounding houses, and while actual exertion became necessary to force a passage 
through frequent heaps of rubbish, it was by no means seldom that the hand fell upon a skeleton, or rested upon a more fleshly corpse. Suddenly, as the seamen stumbled against the entrance of a tall and ghastly-looking building, a yell more than usually shrill from the throat of the excited legs was replied to from within, in a rapid succession of wild, laughter-like, and fiendish shrieks. Nothing daunted at sounds which of such a nature, at such a time, and in such a place, might have curdled the very blood and hearts less irrevocably on fire. The drunken couple rushed headlong against the door, burst it open, and staggered into the midst of things with a volley of curses. The room within which they found themselves proved to be the shop of an undertaker, but an open trap-door in a corner of the floor near the entrance looked down upon a long range of wine-cellars, whose depths the occasional sound of bursting bottles proclaimed to be well stored with their appropriate contents. In the middle of the room stood a table, in the center of which again arose a huge tub of what appeared to be punch. Bottles of various wines and cordials, together with jugs, pitchers, and flagons of every shape and quality, were scattered profusely upon the board. Around it, upon coffin trestles, was seated a company of six. This company I will endeavor to delineate one by one. Fronting the entrance, and elevated a little above his companions, sat a personage who appeared to be the president of the table. His stature was gaunt and tall, and Legs was confounded to behold in him a figure more emaciated than himself. His face was as yellow as saffron, but no feature excepting one alone was sufficiently marked to merit a particular description. This one consisted in a forehead so unusually and hideously lofty as to have the appearance of a bonnet or crown of flesh superadded upon the natural head. His mouth was puckered and dimpled into an expression of ghastly affability, and his eyes, as indeed the eyes of all at the table, were glazed over with the fumes of intoxication. This gentleman was clothed from head to foot in a richly embroidered black silk velvet pall, wrapped negligently around his form after the fashion of a Spanish cloak. His head was stuck full of stable-hearse plumes, which he nodded to and fro with a jaunty and knowing air, and in his right hand he held a huge human thigh-bone, with which he appeared to have been just knocking down some member of the company for a song. Opposite him, and with her back to the door, was a lady of no whit the less extraordinary character. Although quite as tall as the person just described, she had no right to complain of his unnatural emaciation. She was evidently in the last stage of a dropsy, and her figure resembled nearly that of the huge puncheon of October beer, which stood with the head driven in close by her side in a corner of the chamber. Her face was exceedingly round, red, and full, and the same peculiarity, or want of peculiarity, attached itself to her countenance, which I before mentioned in the case of the President's. That is to say, only one feature of her face was sufficiently distinguished to need a separate characterization. Indeed, 
the acute Tarpaulin immediately observed that the same remark might have applied to each individual person of the party, every one of whom seemed to possess a monopoly of some particular portion of physiognomy. With the lady in question, this portion proved to be the mouth. Commencing at the right ear, it swept with a terrific chasm to the left. The short pendants which she wore in either oracle continually bobbing into the aperture. She made, however, every exertion to keep her mouth closed, and look dignified in a dress consisting of a newly starched and iron shroud coming up close under her chin, with a crimpled ruff of cambric muslin. At her right hand sat a diminutive young lady whom she appeared to patronize. This delicate little creature, in the trembling of her wasted fingers, in the livid hue of her lips, and in the slight hectic spot which tinged her otherwise leaden complexion, gave evident indications of a galloping consumption. An air of grave extreme hauteur, however, pervaded her whole appearance, and she wore in a graceful and degage manner a large and beautiful winding-sheet of the finest Indian lawn. Her hair hung in ringlets over her neck, a soft smile played about her mouth, but her nose, extremely long, thin, sinuous, flexible, and pimpled, hung down far below her underlip, and in spite of the delicate manner in which she now and then moved it to one side or the other with her tongue, gave to her countenance a somewhat equivocal expression. Over against her, and upon the left of the dropsical lady, was seated a little, puffy, wheezing, and gouty old man, whose cheeks reposed upon the shoulders of their owner, like two huge bladders of a porto wine, with his arms folded and with one bandaged leg deposited upon the table, he seemed to think himself entitled to some consideration. He evidently prided himself much upon every inch of his personal appearance, but took more especial delight in calling attention to his gaudy-colored surcoat. This, to say the truth, must have cost him no little money and was made to fit him exceedingly well, being fashioned from one of the curiously embroidered silken covers appertaining to those glorious escutcheons which, in England and elsewhere, are customarily hung up in some conspicuous place upon the dwellings of departed aristocracy. Next to him, and at the right hand of the President, was a gentleman in long white hose and cotton drawers, his frame shook in a ridiculous manner, with a fit of what Tarpaulin called the horrors. His jaws, which had been newly shaved, were tightly tied up by a bandage of muslin, and his arms, being fastened in a similar way at the wrists, prevented him from helping himself too freely to the liquors upon the table. A precaution rendered necessary in the opinion of legs, by the peculiarly sottish and wine-bibbing cast of his visage, a pair of prodigious ears, none the less, which it was no doubt found impossible to confine, towered away into the atmosphere of the apartment, and were occasionally pricked up by a spasm at the sound of the drawing of a cork. Fronting him, sixthly and lastly, 
was situated a singularly stiff-looking personage, who, being afflicted with paralysis, must, to speak seriously, have felt very ill at ease in his unaccommodating habiliments. He was habited, somewhat uniquely, in a new and handsome mahogany coffin, its top, or headpiece, pressed upon the skull of the wearer, and extended over it in the fashion of a hood, giving the entire face an air of indescribable interest. Armholes had been cut in the sides, for the sake not more of elegance than of convenience, but the dress, nevertheless, prevented its proprietor from sitting as erect as his associates, and as he lay reclining against his trestle, at an angle of forty-five degrees, a pair of huge goggle eyes rolled up their awful whites toward the ceiling in absolute amazement at their own enormity. Before each of the party lay a portion of a skull, which was used as a drinking cup. Overhead was suspended a human skeleton by means of a rope tied round one of the legs and fastened to a ring in the ceiling. The other limb, confined by no such fetter, stuck off from the body at right angles, causing the whole loose and rattling frame to dangle and twirl about at the caprice of every occasional puff of wind which found its way into the apartment. In the cranium of this hideous thing lay a quantity of ignited charcoal which threw a fitful but vivid light over the entire scene, while coffins and other wares appertaining to the shop of an undertaker were piled high up around the room and against the windows, preventing any ray from escaping into the street. At sight of this extraordinary assembly, and of their still more extraordinary paraphernalia, our two seamen did not conduct themselves with that degree of decorum which might have been expected. Legs, leaning against the wall near which he happened to be standing, dropped his lower jaw still lower than usual, and spread open his eyes to their fullest extent, while Hugh Tarpaulin, stooping down so as to bring his nose upon a level with the table, and spreading out a palm upon either knee, burst into a long, loud, and obstreperous roar of very ill-timed and immoderate laughter." Without, however, taking offence at behaviour so excessively rude, the tall president smiled very graciously upon the intruders, nodded to them in a dignified manner with his head of sable plumes, and, arising, took each by an arm, and led him to a seat which some of the others of the company had placed in the meantime for his accommodation. Legs, to all this, offered not the slightest resistance, but sat down, as he was directed, while the gallant Hugh, removing his coffle trestle from its station near the head of the table to the vicinity of the little consumptive lady in the winding-sheet, plumped down by her side in high glee, and pouring out a skull of red wine, quaffed it to the better acquaintance. But at this presumption the stiff gentleman in the coffin seemed exceedingly nettled, and serious consequences might have ensued had not the president, rapping upon the table with his truncheon, diverted the attention of all present to the following speech. It becomes our duty upon the present happy occasion. Avast there, 
interrupted Legs, looking very serious. Avast there a bit, I say, and tell us who the devil ye all are, and what business ye have here. Rigged off like the foul fiends, and swilling the snug blue ruins stowed away for the winter by my honest shipmate, Will Wimble the Undertaker. At this unpardonable piece of ill-breeding, all the original company half started to their feet, and uttered the same rapid succession of wild, fiendish shrieks which had before caught the attention of the seamen. The president, however, was the first to recover his composure, and at length, turning to legs with great dignity, recommenced. Most willingly will we gratify any reasonable curiosity on the part of guests so illustrious, unbidden though they be. Know then that in these dominions I am monarch, and here rule with undivided umpire under the title of King Pest the First. This apartment, which you no doubt profanely suppose to be the shop of Will Wimble the Undertaker, a man whom we know not, and whose plebeian appellation has never before this night thwarted our royal ears. This apartment, I say, is the dire's chamber of our palace, devoted to the councils of our kingdom, and to other sacred and lofty purposes. The noble lady who sits opposite is Queen Pest, our serene consort. The other exalted personages whom you behold are all of our family, and wear the insignia of the blued royal under the respective titles of His Grace the Archduke Pest Ifris, His Grace the Duke Pest Elential, His Grace the Duke Tempest, and Her Serene Highness the Archduchess Annapest. As regards continued he. Your demand of the business upon which we sit here in council, we might be pardoned for replying that it concerns, and concerns alone, our own private and regal interest, and is in no manner important to any other than ourselves. But in consideration of those rights to which as guests and strangers you may feel yourselves entitled, we will furthermore explain that we are here this night prepared by deep research and accurate investigation to examine, analyze, and thoroughly determine the indefinable spirit, the in comprehensible qualities and nature of those inestimable treasures of the palate, the wines, ales, and liqueurs of this goodly metropolis, by so doing in advance not more our own design than the true welfare of that unearthly sovereign whose reign is over us all, whose dominions are unlimited, and whose name is death. Whose name is Davy Jones, ejaculated Tarplin, helping the lady by his side to a skull of liqueur and pouring out a second for himself. Profane varlet, 
said the president, now turning his attention to the worthy Hugh. Profane and execrable wretch, we have said that in consideration of those rights, which even in thy filthy person we feel no inclination to violate, we have condescend to make reply to thy rude and unseasonable inquiries. We nevertheless, for your unhallowed intrusion upon our counsels, believe it our duty to molt thee and thy companion in each a gallon of black strap, having imbibed which to the prosperity of our kingdom at a single draught and upon your bended knees. Ye shall forthwith free either to proceed upon your way or remain and be admitted to the privileges of our table according to your respective and individual pleasures. It would be a matter of utter impossibility replied Legs, whom the assumptions and dignity of King Pest I had evidently inspired some feelings of respect, and who arose and steadied himself by the table as he spoke. It would, please, your majesty, be a matter of utter impossibility to stow away in my hold even one-fourth part of the same liquor which your majesty has just mentioned, to say nothing of the stuffs placed on board in the forenoon by way of ballast, and not to mention the various ales and liqueurs shipped this evening at different seaports have at present a full cargo of humming stuff taken in and duly paid for at the sign of the Jolly Tar. You will therefore, please your majesty, be so good as to take the will for the deed. For by no manner of means either can I, nor will I, swallow another drop, least of all a drop of that villainous bilge water that answers to the call of Black Strap. Belay that, interrupted Tarpaulin, astonished not more at the length of his companion's speech, than at the nature of his refusal. Belay that, you tubber! And I say, legs, none of your palaver. My hole is still light, although I confess you yourself seem a little top-heavy. And as for the matter of your share in the cargo, why, rather than raise a squall, I would find stowage room for myself, but... This proceeding, interposed the president, is by no means in accordance with the terms of the note sentence, which is in its nature median, and not to be altered or recalled. The conditions we have imposed must be fulfilled to the letter, and that without a moment's hesitation, in failure of which Fulfillment we decree that you do here be dyed neck and heels together, and duly drowned as rebels in young hogshead of October beer. A sentence, a sentence, a righteous and just sentence, a glorious decree, a most worthy and upright and holy condemnation, shouted the Pest family altogether. The king elevated his forehead into innumerable wrinkles. The gouty little old man puffed like a pair of bellows. The lady of the winding sheet waved her nose to and fro. The gentleman in the cotton drawers pricked up his ears. She of the shroud gasped 
like a dying fish, and he of the coffin looked stiff and rolled up his eyes. <laughs> Chuckled Tarpaulin without heeding the general excitation. <laughs> I was saying, said he, I was saying when Mr. King Pest poked in his marlin spiked, that as for the matter of two or three gallons more or less of black strap, it was a trifle to a tight sea boat like myself not overstowed. But when it comes to drinking, the health of the devil whom God has swallows, and going down upon my marrow bones to his ill-favored majesty there, whom I know as well as I know myself to be a sinner, to be nobody in the whole world but Tim Hurl, the girl of the stage player. Why, it's quite another guess sort of a thing, and utterly and altogether past my comprehension. He was not allowed to finish the speech in tranquility, at the name Tim Hurley Gurley, the whole assembly leaped from their name seats. Treason! shouted His Majesty King Pest the First. Treason! said the little man with gout. Treason! screamed the Archduchess Anna Pest. Treason! muttered the gentleman with his jaws tied up. Treason! growled he of the coffin. Treason! Treason! shrieked Her Majesty of the Mouth, and seizing by the hinder part of his breeches the unfortunate tarpaulin, who had just commenced pouring out for himself a skull of liquor, she lifted him high into the air and let him fall without ceremony into the huge, open puncheon of his beloved ale. Bobbing up and down for a few seconds like an apple in a bowl of toddy, he, at length, finally disappeared amid the whirlpool of foam, which, in the already effervescent liqueur, his struggles easily succeeded in creating. Not tamely, however, did the tall seaman behold the discomfiture of his companion. Jostling King Pest through the open trap, the valiant legs slammed the door down upon him with an oath, and strode towards the center of the room. Here, tearing down the skeleton which swung over the table, he laid it about him with so much energy and goodwill that, as the last glimpses of light died away within the apartment, he succeeded in knocking out the brains of the little gentleman with gout, rushing then with all his force against the fatal hogshead full of October ale and Hugh tarpaulin, he rolled it over and over in an instant. Outburst a deluge of liqueur so fierce, so impetuous, so overwhelming, that the room was flooded from wall to wall, the loaded table was overturned, the trestles were thrown upon their backs, the tub of pinch into the fireplace, and the ladies into hysterics. Piles of death furniture floundered about, jugs, pitchers, and carboys mingled promiscuously in the melee and wicker flagons encountered desperately with bottles of junk. The man with the horrors was drowned upon the spot. The little stiff gentleman floated off in his coffin, and the victorious legs, seizing by the waist the fat lady in the shroud, rushed out with her into the street and made a bee-line for the free and easy, followed under easy sail by the redoubtable Hugh Tarpaulin, who, having sneezed three or four times, panted and puffed after him with the Archduchess Anna Pest. End of section 31. Recording by Samantha Gubitz.
The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe, Three Sundays in a Week. You hard-headed, dunder-headed, obstinate, rusty, crusty, musty, fusty old savage, said I, in fancy, one afternoon, to my grand-uncle Rumgudgeon, shaking my fist at him in imagination. Only in imagination. The fact is, some trivial discrepancy did exist, just then, between what I said and what I had not the courage to say, between what I did and what I had half a mind to do. The old porpoise, as I opened the drawing-room door, was sitting with his feet upon the mantelpiece and a bumper of port in his paw, making strenuous efforts to accomplish the ditty Remplis ton vere vide, vide ton vere plain. My dear uncle, said I, closing the door gently, and approaching him with the blandest of smiles, you are always so very kind and considerate, and have evinced your benevolence in so many, so very many ways, that, that I feel I have only to suggest this little point to you once more to make sure of your full acquiescence. Eh, said he, good boy, go on. I am sure, my dearest uncle, you confounded old rascal, that you have no design, really, seriously, to oppose my union with Kate. This is merely a joke of yours, I know. Ha, 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 how very pleasant you are at times. Ha, 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 said he, curse you, yes. Uh, to be sure, of course. I knew you were jesting. Now, uncle, all that Kate and myself wish at present is that you would oblige us with your advice as... As regards the time, you know, uncle. In short, when will it be most convenient for yourself that the wedding shall... shall come off, you know? Come off, you scoundrel? What do you mean by that? Better wait till it goes on. Ha 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 ha! Hee 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 hee! Ha 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 ha! Ho ho ho! Ho ho ho! That's good. Oh, that's capital. Such a wit. But all we want just now, you know, uncle is that you would indicate the time precisely. Ah, uh, precisely? Uh, yes, uncle. That is, if it would be quite agreeable to yourself. Wouldn't it answer, Bobby, if I were to leave it at random? Sometime within a year or so, for example? Must I say precisely? If you please, uncle, precisely? Well then, Bobby, my boy, you're a fine fellow, aren't you? Since you will have the exact time, I'll... While I'll oblige you for once. Dear Uncle! Hush, sir, drowning my voice. I'll oblige you for once. You shall have my consent. And the plum. We mustn't forget the plum. Let me see. When shall it be? Tomorrow's Sunday, isn't it? Well, then, you shall be married precisely, precisely now, mind, when three Sundays come together in a week. Do you hear me, sir? What are you gaping at? I say, you shall have Kate and her plum when three Sundays come together in a week, but not till then, you young scrapecase. Not till then, if I die for it. You know me. I'm a man of my word. Now be off. Here he swallowed his bumper of port, while I rushed from the room in despair. 
A very fine old English gentleman was my grand-uncle Rumgudgeon, but unlike him of the song, he had his weak points. He was a little, pursy, pompous, passionate, semi-circular somebody with a red nose, a thick skull, a long purse, and a strong sense of his own consequence. With the best heart in the world, he contrived, through a predominant whim of contradiction, to earn for himself, among those who only knew him superficially, the character of a curmudgeon. Like many excellent people, he seemed possessed with a spirit of tantalization, which might easily, at a casual glance, have been mistaken for malevolence. To every request, a positive no was his immediate answer. But in the end, in the long, long end, there were exceedingly few requests which he refused. Against all attacks upon his purse, he made the most dirty defense. But the amount extorted from him, at last, was generally in direct ratio with the length of the siege and the stubbornness of the resistance. In charity, no one gave more liberally, or with worse grace. For the fine arts, and especially for the belles lettres, he entertained a profound contempt. With this, he had been inspired by Casimir Perrier, whose pert little query, A quoi un poète est il bon? He was in the habit of quoting, with a very droll pronunciation, as the ne plus ultra of logical wit. Thus my own inkling for the muses had excited his entire displeasure. He assured me one day, when I asked him for a new copy of Horace, that the translation of Poeta nascent non vit was a nasty poet for nothing fit, a remark which I took in high dungeon. His repugnance to the humanities had, also, much increased of late, by an accidental bias in favor of what he supposed to be natural science. Somebody had accosted him in the street, mistaking him for no less a personage than Dr. Double L. D., the lecturer upon quack physics. This set him off at a tangent, and just at the epoch of this story, for story it is getting to be after all, my grand-uncle Rumgudgeon was accessible and pacific only upon points which happened to chime in with the caprioles of the hobby he was riding. For the rest, he laughed with his arms and legs, and his politics were stubborn and easily understood. He thought, with Horsley, that people have nothing to do with the laws but to obey them. I have lived with the old gentleman all my life. My parents, in dying, had bequeathed me to him as a rich legacy. I believe the old villain loved me as his own child, nearly, if not quite, as well as he loved Kate. But it was a dog's existence that he led me, after all. From my first year until my fifth, he obliged me with very regular floggings. From five to fifteen, he threatened me, hourly, with the house of correction. From fifteen to twenty, not a day passed in which he did not promise to cut me off with a shilling. I was a sad dog, it is true, but then it was a part of my nature, a point of my faith. In Kate, however, I had a firm friend, and I knew it. She was a good girl, and told me very sweetly that I might have her, plum and all, whenever I could badger my grand-uncle Rumgudgeon into the necessary consent. Poor girl, she was barely fifteen, and without this consent, her little amount in the funds was not comatable until five immeasurable summers had dragged their slow length along. What then to do? At fifteen, or even at twenty-one, 
for I had now passed my fifth Olympiad, five years in prospect are very much the same as five hundred. In vain we beseech the old gentleman with importunities. Here was a piece de la resistance, as Monsieur Unde and Caramé would say, which suited his perverse fancy to a T. It would have stiffed the indignation of Job himself to see how much like an old mouser he behaved to us two poor wretched little mice. In his heart he wished for nothing more ardently than our union. He had made up his mind to this all along. In fact, he would have given ten thousand pounds from his own pocket. Kate's plum was her own. If he could have invented anything like an excuse for complying with our very natural wishes. But then we had been so impudent as to broach the subject ourselves. Not to oppose it under such circumstances, I sincerely believe, was not in his power. I have said already that he had his weak points, but speaking of these, I must not be understood as referring to his obstinacy, which was one of his strong points. When I mention his weakness, I have allusion to a bizarre old womanish superstition which beset him. He was great in dreams, portents, et id genus omne of rigmarole. He was excessively punctilious, too, upon small points of honor, and, after his own fashion, was a man of his word, beyond doubt. This was, in fact, one of his hobbies. The spirit of his vows he made no scruple of setting it not, but the letter was a bond inviolable. Now it was this latter peculiarity of his disposition, of which Kate's ingenuity enabled us one fine day, not long after our interview in the dining-room, to take a very unexpected advantage, and having thus, in the fashion of all modern bards and orators, exhausted in promogenia, all the time at my command, and nearly all the room at my disposal, I will sum up in a few words what constitutes the whole pith of the story. It happened then, so the fates ordered it, that among the naval acquaintances of my betrothed were two gentlemen, who had just set foot upon the shores of England after a year's absence, each in foreign travel. In company with these gentlemen, my cousin and I preconcertedly paid Uncle Rugmudgeon a visit on the afternoon of Sunday, October the 10th, just three weeks after the memorable decision which had so cruelly defeated our hopes. For about half an hour the conversation ran upon ordinary topics, but at last we contrived, quite naturally, to give it the following turn. Captain Pratt well, I have been absent just one year, just one year today as I live. Let me see, yes, this is October the 10th. You remember, Mr. Rubgudgeon, I called this day year to bid you goodbye. And, by the way, it does seem something like a coincidence, does it not, that our friend Captain Smitherton here has been absent exactly a year also, a year today. Smitherton Yes, just one year to a fraction. You will remember, Mr. Rumgudgeon, that I called with Captain Pratt on this very day, last year, to pay my parting respects. Uncle. Yes, yes, yes. I remember it very well. Very queer indeed. Both of you gone just one year. A very strange coincidence indeed. Just what Dr. Double L.D. would denote an extraordinary concurrence of events. Dr. Dub, Kate, interrupting. To be sure, Papa, it is something strange. But then Captain Pratt and Captain Smitherton didn't go altogether the same route. And that makes a difference, you know. Uncle, 
I don't know any such thing, you hussy. How should I? I think it only makes the matter more remarkable. Dr. Double L.D. Kate. Why, Papa, Captain Pratt went round Cape Horn, and Captain Smitherton doubled the Cape of Good Hope. Uncle. Precisely. The one went east and the other went west. You jade and they both have gone quite round the world. By the by, Dr. Double L.D. Myself, hurriedly. Captain Pratt, you must come and spend the evening with us tomorrow. You and Smitherton, you can tell us all about your voyage, and we'll have a game of whist and... Pratt. Whist, my dear fellow? You forget. Tomorrow will be Sunday. Some other evening. Kate. Oh, no, fie. Robert's not quite so bad as that. Today's Sunday. Pratt. I beg both your pardons. But I can't be so much mistaken. I know tomorrow's Sunday because... Smitherton, much surprised. What are you talking about? Wasn't yesterday Sunday, I should like to know? All. Yesterday, indeed, you are out. Uncle. Today's Sunday. I say, don't I know? Pratt. Oh, no. Tomorrow's Sunday. Smitherton. You are all mad, every one of you. I'm as positive that yesterday was Sunday as I am that I sit upon this chair. Kate, jumping up eagerly. I see, I see it all. Papa, this is a judgment upon you, about, about you know what. Let me alone, and I'll explain it all in a minute. It's a very simple thing indeed. Captain Smitherton says that yesterday was Sunday. So it was. He is right. Cousin Bobby and Uncle and I say that today is Sunday, and so it is. We are right. Captain Pratt maintains that tomorrow will be Sunday, so it will be. He is right, too. The fact is, we are all right, and thus three Sundays have come together in a week. Smitherton, after a pause. By the by, Pratt, Kate has us completely. What fools we two are. Mr. Rumgudgeon, the matter stands thus. The earth, you know, is 24,000 miles in circumference. Now this globe of the earth turns upon its own axis, revolves, spins round, these 24,000 miles of extent, going from west to east in precisely 24 hours. Do you understand, Mr. Rumgudgeon? Uncle. To be sure, to be sure. Dr. Dub, Smitherton, drowning his voice, well, sir, that is a rate of 1,000 miles per hour. Now, suppose that I sail from this position 1,000 miles east. Of course, I anticipate the rising of the sun here at London by just one hour. I see the sun rise one hour before you do. Proceeding in the same direction, get another 1,000 miles. I anticipate the rising by two hours. Another 1,000, and I anticipate it by three hours. And so on until I go entirely around the globe and back to this spot, when, having gone 24,000 miles east, I anticipate the rising of the London sun by no less than 24 hours. That is to say, I am a day in advance of your time. Understand, eh? Uncle. But double L.D. Smitherton, speaking very loud. Captain Pratt, on the contrary, when he sailed 1,000 miles west of this position, was an hour, and when he sailed 24,000 miles west, was 24 hours, or one day, behind the time at London. 
Thus, with me, yesterday was Sunday. Thus, with you, today is Sunday. And thus, with Pratt, tomorrow will be Sunday. And what is more, Mr. Rumgudgeon, it is positively clear that we are all right. For there can be no philosophical reason assigned why the idea of one of us should have preference over that of the other. Uncle. My eyes! Well, Kate. Well, Bobby, this is a judgment upon me, as you say. But I am a man of my word, mark that. You shall have her, boy, plum and all, when you please. Done up by Jove. Three Sundays all in a row. I'll go and take double LD's opinion upon that. End of section 32. Recording by Todd. End of the works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe.